good afternoon. Glad to see you guys here at the lunch hour at Connect Church. Now, when children and even adults are taught about modern gender theory, a common visual aid that's used is something called the gender bread man. I've got a photo of the gender bread man here on the screen. He's a cute little guy. And essentially, the gender bread man is meant to communicate the various aspects of gender identity as the world kind of thinks about them today. So sex, sexuality, gender, expression, all of those different things. So it's okay if you can't make out all the details. You can Google this. It's a very common and well-known resource. You'll find it very easily online if you want to. And uh, the genderbred person starts by teaching kids about their identity. Inside of their brain, there is a sense of who they are, what they are, how they fit in the world, and the way that they can kind of showcase to the world who and what they are. It starts in the brain. Now, last week's message was really focused on this idea that, um, you know, the, the world says our brain, our minds determine our identity. So you can go back and catch last week's message, and we fill in a lot of those details on that. Then the genderbred man moves to the heart. That is attraction. Who or what are you attracted to? You can be attracted to males or females, men or women, masculine people or feminine people. Kind of runs the gamut. It moves on to sex. It's kind of an awkward placement there, but I guess it's pointing out that sex is biological. It has to deal with like those biological factors that make you male or female. And then finally, we have gender expression, which is really the way that all three of those other factors come together to help form the visible you, the part of you or the, the, the form of you that people in the world see. Now, if the genderbred man stopped here, it could be a helpful tool, even if for no other reason than to help us understand kind of how the modern world views gender and identity and things like that. But the genderbred man doesn't stop there. At the bottom of this page, what you'll see is a whole lot of language that we won't take the time to go into, but essentially what it means is all of these various aspects of the genderbred man, they're all distinct and interchangeable. That is, you can mix and match, you can separate and you can segregate, and you can realign things in any way that a mind might comprehend. There's also an implicit order of priority in these things. So when teachers are coached on how to teach this to their kids, it starts with identity at the top. This is the first thing that we want to communicate about gender identity. It all starts in your brain. The foundation of who you are, what you are, it's all here in your mind. Then it moves to attraction. Then it gets to biology third before moving on to expression as well. So the end result of all of this is a bit of a fragmented person. You know, gingerbread is kind of fun because you can break it into little sections and you can eat it, play with it, whatever you want to. And there is some of that sense here in which we have broken apart pieces and we can reassemble them in any way that we might like to, at least according to modern gender theory. Now, what I want you to do is compare or contrast the genderbred man with what we read in 1 Thessalonians 5.23. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says this, may the God of peace make you holy in every way. May your whole person, your spirit, your mind, and your body be kept blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ comes again. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 teaches what the scriptures say consistently from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation, that humans are a three-part creation. We are a tripartite being. That is, if you want to understand what it means to be a real person, a, a human being, then you are going to think of yourself or you're going to understand yourself in terms of your body, your mind, and your spirit or your soul, if we want to use that word. We are three parts, three distinct yet inseparable parts. 
actually think that this three-part design of our humanity is reflective of God's Trinitarian nature. God is a trinity, a tri-unity. There are three distinct persons within the Godhead, and yet they all share the same essence, right? In the same way, there are three distinct parts of you, and all of it forms you as a human being. We, we also see this reflected in Genesis 2-7, when the Lord says, then the Lord God formed the human from the dust of the ground. That's the body. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils. That's mind. And then he, the man became a living person, or other translations say a living soul. That's the third component there. So a human body, guys, is a mind, a human being rather, is a mind and a body that is animated by the life-giving spirit of God. That's what it means to be human. Three parts all coming together cohesively and in an integrated way. That's what makes us us. A human is irreducibly complex. You can't separate the body from the mind, from the soul, and still have humanity left. We can't, we have to understand all three of these things together in order to understand fundamentally what we even are as a creation. By the way, this is the reason that the, the Bible describes death as such a tragedy. In fact, the word that's used in the New Testament is that death is an enemy. Why does it use that language? Well, because death temporarily separates the things that God originally intended to be completely unified and together. It separates the body and the soul and the mind from one another. And God says that's an enemy that he is going to defeat on our behalf, that we won't be separated forever at the resurrection. All three of the components that make us human are brought back together into God's original design. Okay, so we've got the gender-bred man, which is kind of mix and match and break apart and refashion however you like. And then we have the words of 1 Thessalonians and the rest of scripture, which say, no, you are a cohesive and a whole being that's made up of these three parts. It's really two different perspectives, philosophies, or ideas about what it even means to be a human being. We could kind of summarize these different um, perspectives this way, particularly when we're thinking about the body portion of our existence. The world says that you're your body is merely a container or a canvas. Your body's a container or it's a canvas, but God says your body is good and your body is a guide. Okay. I know you're like, what is he talking about today? Stay with me. Okay. We're going to spend all of our time together discussing those four words, container, canvas, good, and guide. The world says your body is a container and a canvas, but God says your body is good and a guide. In fact, what I, what I hope to show you today is that part of the issues that we're having in our world today relate to the fact that we have too low a view of the human body in modern times. Yeah. We actually think the body is kind of not really that important. We, we tend to strip it of its dignity and its glory, its beauty and its weight. And that causes us to, to become all sorts of different things that I think are, are contrary to what God originally designed for us. In fact, I think the scriptures offer us a healthier and more holistic picture of what it even means to be a person. So Let's start with that claim, okay? That your body is merely a container for the real you. Like we talked about last week in modern gender theory, your authentic self is determined in the mind. That's the real you. It's located up here. Remember the gender bread man. When you're thinking about your identity, it starts in the brain, which was a rainbow and that feels a little loaded. But anyway, we'll just overlook that for now. It starts in your mind. And if in your mind, you have a sense of who and what you are, and yet when you look at your body, you see something different Then, according to our, our current belief system, we should realign the body so that it matches up with the mind. 
Are you with me? That's the whole basis of what we're talking about. That the real you, your identity is not dictated by your genes or your genitals. It's determined by your thoughts. Okay. People are explicitly taught this. Kids are explicitly taught this, that if you want to find the real you, you look on the inside, you ignore whatever other external pressures or constraints there might exist. And you determine for yourself inside of your own mind, who you are, what you are, and how you're going to live your life. There, uh, there's a quote on the screen for you from a, a trans activist, a trans woman who is a model and, and active in, in kind of trans conversation. This is what she said. She said, all of us are put in boxes by our family, our religion, by our society, our moment in history, even our own bodies. Some people have the courage to break free. So the modern perspective, the, the message that we're seeing all around us is, listen, don't, it doesn't matter what the book says. It doesn't matter what your family says. It doesn't matter what people have said for centuries. What matters is what you feel and believe on the inside, in your mind. But is your body really that unimportant? That like it has no say in what the real you actually is? Is it really that unimportant? A couple of weeks ago, Amber had a container of strawberries that she had bought from the store. I don't like strawberries. I don't know. I know I'm weird. Some of you guys are like, what? Oh, how dare you? I get it. I get it. Um, however, I don't really care for them. Yet Amber had bought this container of strawberries. And like I'm sure you know, uh, they came in a clamshell container. You know, that plastic kind of flip top sort of thing. Okay. Which was more important, the strawberries or the container? Strawberries, right? Obviously. In fact, yeah, to me or to Amber, fair enough, fair enough. No, to both of us, okay? In fact, the containers only existed to make sure that we could have the strawberries. The strawberries were the real thing. That was the valuable thing. Once Amber had nommed up all those strawberries and the container was empty, we didn't hold on to the container. We didn't say, ooh, this is still valuable. We should, we should keep this. It has meaning. It has some, some import to it. No, we tossed it. It was disposable. It, was mere, it merely existed to give us the thing that we thought was valuable on the inside. Is your body like that? Is it just a container for the really important stuff on the inside? Listen, as somebody who has accidentally amputated one of his toes, Whoa. true story I have, I can tell you no part of the body is meaningless, okay? You, you lose any of it. If any of it stops functioning the way that it's supposed to, the rest of you is going to know right away. Your body is not half as unimportant as the, the messaging that we kind of get from the world around us. We understand that being an embodied creature is a part of our very existence. We can talk about how the, the body is just a container or a vehicle for the real us, but I think it's much more than that. In fact, I was kind of thinking about another illustration because um, the strawberry one's kind of dumb. I'll be the first to admit that. But anyway, um, a lot of people treat their body the way that they treat their vehicle or they think of their body the way that they think of their car right? You ever been in a car where somebody hasn't cleaned the floorboards in like 11 months? It's really, really clear as filet of fish wrappers. And what's that? I drive in here. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You get it, right? They're like, some people look at their car that way where it's like, look, my car exists just to get me to where I'm supposed to go so I can do the things that I want to do. I don't really need to take care of it. It doesn't really matter because in the end, I'm going to swap it out. I'm going to get something else. I'm going to try on something that's a better fit, all those different things. And the truth is in our world today, we tend to look at our bodies that way. It's just a vehicle 
or a container to, to carry around the real me. But understand, from a scriptural perspective, that's not true. And you know this intuitively as well. Like when you hurt yourself or when you get sick, you don't tell yourself, oh, well, the body's not the real me, so I guess it doesn't matter that I'm bleeding at the moment. Right. No, of course yeah. not. We know intuitively that the body matters. It actually does have some meaning and some weight and some value. In fact, what we see in the scripture is the truth that you don't have a body, you are a body. You don't have a body, you are a body. The real you does not have a vehicle that it drives around every day. No, the vehicle is a part of you. Are you with me? Embodiment is essential to humanity. You can't be a human without some sort of physical form. Now, in the future, we might be able to upload your consciousness to the cloud or something like that. But today we can't. And even if we could, is that really going to be you? Like the truth is, the me that exists, it is shaped by the physical form that I carry around. By the fact that I'm a male, by the fact that I'm five foot six, by the fact that I have a red beard, you know what I mean? All of those things impact how I see myself, how other people relate to me, all of those different things. Embodiment is essential to humanity. So this casualness with which we treat the body in our world today, I think it creates all sorts of issues for us. This idea that our bodies, they're not really that important because the real you, the good stuff is on the inside. I think it leads to a lot of the problems that we see in our world today. You know, hookup culture is really just the end result of people not caring much about their body. It's like, yeah, it's just my body. It doesn't matter. We can hook up. We can do our thing. And in the end, there won't be any connection. We can each go our own way. Does it really work that way? Do you know that this casualness with which we treat our body, that's at the root of substance abuse, right? Like we say, oh, I know it's not good for my lungs for me to smoke all this stuff or vape this pen or whatever, but I know it's not good for my liver to drink this much, but it's about me. I want to be happy. The real me on the inside wants, likes, and needs these sorts of things. And so even if it's not good for the body, it's not really that important because in the end, the body, it's just a container for the real me. This, this um, casualness with which we treat the body, it's at the root of self-harm. Like, I, I'm brokenhearted by the fact that there are people in our world who cut themselves. There are people in the world that, that have eating disorders and all these, all of these things that we do to kind of sabotage our body. All of that is indicative of the fact that we actually don't have a very good view, a very high view of our physical form. We treat it way too casually, way too disposably, as if it really doesn't matter at all. I was listening to another pastor kind of preach on this, and he used a totally different analogy. Maybe it would have been a better one. I don't know. But he said that, you know, a lot of people treat their bodies like paper plates. You, you, your paper plate exists only to carry the food. And then when you're done, you crumple it up and you throw it away. But he was like, listen, you are not a paper plate. You're fine china, baby. So treat yourself as if you are fine china. Treat your body as if it has some value and some worth and some dignity because according to God, it actually does. Now, there's, uh, we, we kind of talked about how this, this modern perspective is the real you is on the inside. The outside is just the container or the vessel. And if you want to know the real you, then ignore what's on the outside, ignore what's in the world around you, and instead turn inward. And then whatever you find, that is the real and authentic you. But does that actually hold up to scrutiny? Like, am I actually able to go into my, is my mind able to go into my mind and on its own, free from any external influence or constriction at all, determine what it is? I'm not so sure that that actually holds up when you start to think about it. The author, Tim Keller, 
He actually has this incredible, um, this experiment, thought experiment that illustrates what I'm trying to get at here. I'm just going to read it because it's a little long, but he, he actually says a lot of things that I think are super helpful and I couldn't phrase them any better. So I'll just read what he says. Tim Keller writes, imagine an Anglo-Saxon warrior in Britain in AD 800. So we're talking about like Viking times, right? Okay. Imagine this Anglo-Saxon warrior in Britain in AD 800. He has two very strong inner impulses and feelings. One is aggression. He loves to smash and kill people when they show him disrespect. And living in an honor and shame culture with its warrior ethic, he will identify with that feeling. He'll say to himself, yeah, that's me. That's right. That's who I am. I will express that. But the other feeling he carries around on the inside is same-sex attraction. And because of the culture he lives in, he will say, well, that's not me. I'll control that. I'll suppress that desire because that's not a good impulse to have. Now, set him aside for a moment and imagine a young man walking around the city of Manhattan today, or we could imagine a kid walking around Calgary. And he has within himself the same two impulses, both equally strong, both difficult to control. So what will he say? He'll look at the aggression and he'll think, well, that's not who I want to be. And he'll seek deliverance from the aggression in therapy and anger management programs. And yet he'll look at his sexual desire and he'll conclude, yeah, that's who I am. Nancy Piercy, an author that we'll talk about a little bit later in our message, she says in her book, Love Thy Body, she says this, humans are not self-creating, self-existent, self-defining beings. We all look to outside sources to inform us about who we are and how we should live. We look for a rule or a grid or a guide to help us to decide which feelings and impulses are good versus those that are unhealthy or immoral and should be rechanneled. So Tim Keller concludes this whole thought experiment of the two guys living at different time periods with the same inner desires. And he says this, where do our Anglo-Saxon warrior and our modern Manhattan man get their grids? How do they determine what's good and what should be suppressed? He says, from their cultures, their communities, from their heroic stories. They may think that they're simply choosing to be their authentic selves, but in reality, they're filtering their feelings, jettisoning some and embracing others. They are choosing to be the selves their culture tells them they are allowed to be. This is true. We could say, oh, I look inside and I determine who I am. I am the captain of my own ship. I am the one who decides what my identity is. But in truth, everything I believe is informed by my lived embodied experience and by the culture in which I grew up in. Every bit of me is reliant in some way on the world around me and my past experiences. And so this idea then that we can just look inside and determine who we are based on our mind and feelings alone, it doesn't hold water. In fact, from a scriptural perspective, we discover that the real you, the real you arises out of your whole person and out of your relationship to others. The real you is not just what you believe about yourself in your mind. It's also your body. It's also the soul that God has given you. It's also the family that you were born into. It's also the culture that you find yourself swimming in. All of those things have helped to shape you into the person you are today. This idea that only my mind determines the authentic me, it just doesn't make sense. Now, 
there's a, another message that we receive from culture beyond that our body is just a container. And, and the second message really flows out of the first. It's that our bodies are simply a canvas, which we are free to fashion and reshape however we see fit. If you pay really close attention, you'll see this kind of idea uh, all over the place. I mean, this is super, super common in our world today. Like if the real you is on the inside, the important stuff is on the inside. And if inside you see yourself one way, but then you look outside and you see something different, well, the real you should take priority. Feel free to refashion, reform, reshape your body so that your external aligns with your internal sense of self. Are you with me? We live in wild times, you guys. If we want to, we can turn to surgeries or pills and we can remake ourselves in our own image or in the image of the Kardashians, if that's what you're after. Okay. <laughs> Hear me. Let, let, check this. You can put implants in your breasts. Elon, Elon Musk wants to put implants in your brains. <laughs> you can inject your butt with testosterone. You can inject your butt with silicone. You can suck the fat out of your belly. You can snip the penis from your body. We can do some pretty wild stuff given our medical advancements, technology that we have today. And this is true of all people. Hear what I'm about to say. Cisgender and transgender people alike treat the body as if it were a morally neutral canvas that can be reshaped without consequence. But in the words of the eminent scientist, uh, Dr. Ian Malcolm, maybe you'll remember his famous line. He says, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. Just because we can do all of these things today, are we certain that we should be doing all of these things? Are we really confident that if we start fundamentally altering what it means to be a physically embodied creature, that there are going to be no negative consequences for us as individuals or for us as a society? Are we really certain about that? And I'm not just talking about like Ozempic and lip fillers here, okay? I'm, I'm talking about the fact that we are on the verge of being able to edit the genes of babies in utero using CRISPR technology, I'm, I'm talking about the fact that like we're giving puberty blockers to kids and we're assuming, yeah, we can do that and it's going to be okay, I'm sure, in the long run. Are we really sure, though, that these decisions, these fundamental changes we're making to our bodies are without any sort of harm or consequence? Just because there's no limit to what we can do doesn't mean that there's no limit to what we ought to be doing. Again, I'll tell you guys, all of this is actually, it's a symptom of the fact that we devalue the body. Because some of you might hear what I'm saying and you're like, I don't know, man. It seems like people, like they think a lot about their body. They spend a lot of money trying to sculpt and shape their body, getting the healthiest skin, you know, getting the best body they possibly can, gym memberships and $200 night creams and all these different things. It seems like people are pretty obsessed with the body. You know what? People are obsessed with a fictional body. We hate the real body. We don't like real bodies. We don't like old bodies, overweight bodies, pale bodies, disabled bodies. We don't really like those things. We want to do everything we can to fix them, to adjust them, to make them more like some ideal standard that frankly only exists on Instagram filters. We are devaluing the body. And when we devalue the body, we devalue our humanity. Every time. Because you're a whole person. You're not just a mind. 
You're not just a body. You're not just a soul. You're all three. And so anytime we devalue one of those three parts of you, we devalue who you are fundamentally. Now, again, I've told you guys the the perspective that our world carries around today is that anytime a person has a misalignment between their internal sense of self and their external physical form, that we should adjust the physical form in order to match up with what they say they feel like on the inside. That's kind of the, the basis and the fundamental treatment approach to folks suffering with gender dysphoria. But we don't actually hold to that perspective and treatment plan very consistently. Because there are some other instances in which people might present and they have a conception of themselves on the inside that disagrees with their external physical form. And in these circumstances, we don't say, oh, well, let's reshape your body after your mind. We say, actually, I think your mind might be the problem here. Maybe we need to adjust that so it comes in line with your body. Anorexia is a good example. So when somebody has an eating disorder, particularly like anorexia, they see themselves as overweight, despite the fact that any person looking at them from the outside would say, you're not overweight, you're malnourished. You have 1% body fat. Like you don't need a diet. You don't need to lose any more weight. You need to gain weight. However, for them, and this is a sincerely held belief on the inside, they genuinely believe that they are unhealthy and overweight. But if an anorexic showed up to the doctor, the doctor wouldn't say, oh, well, you feel overweight. Let's get you scheduled for lipo. We wouldn't do that. Why? Because we understand, at least in this circumstance, that your mind is not seeing things the way it should. Your body is actually the standard by which we should align the mind. Are you with me? No, it's not just this one-off example. There's another one. This is a little darker, a little more macabre. Maybe you've heard of it, maybe you haven't. There are people in our world today and they suffer from what's called body integrity identity disorder. It's a mouthful, B-I-I-D, okay? And people who suffer with B-I-I-D, they wake up in the morning and they look at their physical body and there will be some portion of their body that they say, that's not mine. This doesn't belong to me. So quite literally, they'll look at their left arm, for instance, and they'll say, I don't know whose that arm is, but it's not mine. I know it's not my arm. I've always known since I was a little kid that this arm does not belong to me. It causes me great internal distress. I want it gone. Some people actually self-amputate their own limbs as a way to be free from the internal distress that they're feeling. It's a very real thing. You can Google it carefully. Safe search on. Um, But... When somebody with BIID goes to the doctor and says, I I don't want to do the self thing. Okay, I want you to help me out here. This doesn't belong. I know it doesn't belong. And I would be happier and healthier if my arm were gone. The doctor says, listen, my Hippocratic oath prevents me from amputating your arm. There's no medical reason to do it. Your mind is wrong. Your body is right. You need to go to therapy. You need to get some help. You need to bring your mind in alignment with the body. Okay. Some people will find what I said very offensive. How dare I compare transgenderism to these mental disorders? And I want to be really, really clear. Hear what I'm going to say. I don't want there to be any sort of misunderstanding. I am not saying or implying that transgenderism is a mental disorder. That's not at all what I'm saying. What I am saying is the the textbook, the resource that doctors use to define and treat anorexia and BIID 
also lists gender dysphoria as a mental disorder. The DSM-5 lists all three of these things as disorders of the mind in relation to the body. And this gender dysphoria is what drives people to move into a transgender identity and lifestyle. So with all of those facts given, I think it's at least reasonable to ask the question, how come when it comes to BIID and anorexia, we say, let's align your mind with your body. But when it comes to gender dysphoria, we say, no, 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 we're going to align the body with the mind. These are very similar psychopathologies. So why is it that we come at them from opposite perspectives and we address them with the exact opposite treatment plan? I think it's a fair question. But it's not just like mental disorders and things like that. There's another analog that's pretty interesting. and It's at least worth discussing and considering here, okay? And that is, we live in a world today in which there are more and more people who are called transracial people, transracial people. And a transracial person is someone who on the inside does not identify with the race or ethnicity that they were born into. Okay? They, they would say, although they are white, they have white skin, whatever, they say, no, I'm actually Asian or I'm actually black or something like that. Now, I know right away you guys are going to be like, come on, this is not serious. What if there are like six people that probably feel this way? We can't really take this very seriously, but stay with me, okay? Because I'm old enough to remember when people said that exact same sort of thing about transgender people. It's like, there's what? Like, there's like six of those people. Come on. They've got their own issues. Don't worry about them. And now it's become the dominant conversation in our day. So we can't just dismiss it out of hand, right? We, we would look at, and there are a couple of like really famous examples of this. We're not going to put them on the screen or anything. You can Google if you want to read it. There's a lady named Rachel in the U.S. who was born white, but she identified as African-American. So she went through a bunch of skin darkening treatments. She changed her hair so that it was more like black hair. She tried to take over the chapter of an NAACP. It was a big big, big story down in the U.S. several years ago. And then there's this guy online, a well-known YouTube celebrity named Ollie London. He's a white guy. He's British by birth, but he is in love with Korean boy bands. And he said, this is sincere. This is not a joke. It's not some stunt. He genuinely believed that on the inside, he was actually Korean and not white. And so he went through a bunch of surgeries to alter his facial structure so that he looked more Asian and less white. We're all like, come on, that's ridiculous. You can't do that. You can't just claim somebody else's race as your own. That's insane. You can't just take somebody else's ethnicity and culture and own it. Rightfully so, we would say that. But again, I think then it's fair to ask the question, why is it that cultural appropriation will get you canceled and gender appropriation will get you celebrated? Mm. Like, why is it that a black person could not become an Asian person or a white person couldn't become a black person, we would say that, but a man could be a woman or a woman could be a man. Like, again, these are analogs. They're not identical. I'm not saying they're exactly the same situation, but what I'm saying is there are people that are using the same logic that justifies transgender ideology to justify transracial ideology and transhuman ideology and all of these other things. And at some point we have to ask, maybe there's a problem with the underlying ideology. Maybe there's a problem with our low view of the human body, our sense that our bodies are not good enough. They're not valuable and worthy on their own. Instead, they need to be augmented and changed in order to be acceptable. Our belief that our body is ultimately just a container or a canvas, it's left us schizophrenic. Like we can't decide 
Where's the real us? Is it the mind or the body? Well, it depends on which circumstance you're talking about. Depends on which culture you're in. Depends on which worldview you hold to. What we need is something more holistic, something healthier, something that's reflective of what we all know intuitively, rather than chopping ourselves up literally and figuratively, we should start to think about ourselves as an integrated whole, mind, body, and spirit using a consistent rationale. I think this is what God offers to us in the scripture. I think this is where the Christian worldview has an opportunity to speak, not just truth, but health to people. Because while the world says your body is just a container and it's a canvas to do with whatever you want, God says your body is good and your body is a guide. Time and again, the scriptures teach you that your body is a good gift from God. Let me say that again. Your body is good. Your body is good. Your body, your body is good. You say, oh, when I wake up in the morning and I stand in front of the mirror, it doesn't look good to me. I see all the faults. I see all the flaws. I see everything I wish was different. Everything that I wish I could change. I understand that. I genuinely do. But scripturally, we see time and again that your body is a good gift from God. Consider the, the verses that I put on the screen. Jesus or God through Jesus gave me my body. Psalm 139, 13 to 14 says this, you made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous and how well I know it. God gave you the body that you have. Jesus entered the world in a body. John chapter number one, verse 14. Scripture says, so Christ, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Do you know when God wanted to like reveal himself to the world, he could have done it in any number of ways. He could have like projected a holograph on the sky so that everybody in the world could watch the movie at the same time and learn who God was. He could have, he could have dropped a magic book from the sky if he wanted to. He could have done any number of things to reveal himself, but when he wanted to show us who he was, the scripture says he took on flesh and he lived among us in the person of Jesus. God apparently really values bodies. I don't have this written here, but I should have. Jesus rose bodily from the grave. He didn't just rise in spirit. No, they were freaking out because there was no body in the grave. We read in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20, the Holy Spirit lives in bodies. Do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Philippians 3, 21 tells us that in eternity, in heaven, we won't be disembodied ghosts floating around on a cloud forever. No, look at what the scripture says here. It says, at the return of Christ, he will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own. When you read Revelation 21 and 22, you know what you find out? Heaven doesn't exist somewhere out there in space. It's right here on earth. God creates a new earth. There is a new Jerusalem. Everybody who lives inside of eternity is embodied in the same way that Christ was embodied after the resurrection. God has a high view of your body. And so should you. You should see it as a good gift from him. Now, 
There's nothing in the Bible that says your body is perfect, okay? The Bible's not going to lie to you. There are, of course, many things that you might see in your physical self that you wish you could change or that are not quite up to the same standard that other people might enjoy, okay? That's very, very true. But do you know what the Bible actually, you know what the word good means? So when we look at Genesis 1 and we read about how God created such and such on this day and then it was good and he created these things on that day and it was good, right? Do you know what that word good means? It means, it doesn't mean flawless. It doesn't mean perfect. You know what it means? It means fitting or appropriate for the task. Oh, you guys, this is so good. When God says your body is good, what he means is it is fitting or appropriate for what he wants to do in you and through you. Your body is not a mistake. You may have been born with some sort of disability, something that made you different from other people. It might not be a disability. It might just be a part of you that you don't really like. I get up in the morning and I stand in front of the full length mirror and I'm like, five, six, for real? Come on, my dad's five, 10. Like, could I at least be five, 10? That seems fair. There are parts of me that I don't like, parts of me that I wish I could change. But the reason that I'm five, six is for whatever reason God has, this body that I carry around is fitting and appropriate for what God wants to accomplish in me and through me. He might just need to keep me humble, honestly. Like if I was six foot, I might be a jerk. I don't know. But for whatever reason, God gave me the body that I have. And so I can resent it. I can hate it. I can try to carve it up. I can spend my whole life chasing some fake form of perfection, or I can get up and say, although it's not perfect, my body is good because it's a gift from my father in heaven. And you can say the same as well. Listen, if you wake up in the morning and you look in the mirror and you hate what you see, I want you to know that feeling and impulse is not from your father. It's not from your creator. He doesn't want you to view yourself that way. In fact, he warns us against getting our value from how we look on the outside. Like for a bunch of different reasons, okay? One, we're all going to be like saggy and wrinkly in the end anyhow. So like if you're one of those very lucky people that has a wonderful body, good for you, all right? Stop rubbing it in my face. But anyway, in the end, the very thing that gave you your self-worth is going to go away. So you're going to have to find something else to ground your self-esteem in anyhow. You might as well do it in the promises and truth that God gives you in his word. God tells us that our bodies are good. They may not be perfect. Even if they're closer in perfection than many other people, that's no reason to boast either. Your body is a good gift from your father in heaven. And the last thing I'll say, and I'm not even going to really get into this because we're going to talk more about this next week. So I'll save most of what I want to say here. But um, not only does God say that your body is good, God says your body is the guide for how he intends you to live. Your body is actually the guide. It is kind of the compass. It is the, the thing that you should be looking to to inform so much of who you are and how you're supposed to approach your life. Um, for now, let me just read for you Romans 12, 1 to 2. Romans chapter number 12, verses 1 to 2 says this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercies, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This constitutes true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but instead be transformed by 
liposuction, teeth whitening, hair straightening, pec implants. No. (laughs) He says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. If you allow the Holy Spirit to renew your mind every day, to see yourself the way that God sees you, to see your life the way that God sees your life. Do you know what? Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. You will say it is good and pleasing and perfect. You could see yourself the way that God does and you'd be like, yeah, it's pretty good. I'm pleased with it. In fact, it honestly feels pretty perfect for me. In the end, the call and invitation that God gives to transgender people is exactly the same as the one he gives to non-transgender people. It's the same that he gives to Gen X and Gen Z, men and women, old and young, single, married. It's the same for every single person. Rather than fix your body, he calls you to renew your mind. Every day. I'm not going to get up, try to fix my body, make it perfect. I'm not going to worry about that. I'm not going to try to please everybody else or some cultural state. No, I'm going to let the Holy Spirit renew my mind, see myself the way my father sees me, and let that be good enough for whatever it is he wants to do in me and through me. Oh, God, I'm praying that you would help us. Help me. Lord, I fall victim to this just like everybody does. So help me to understand that my value and my worth is not tied to how I look. It's not tied to the number on the scale. It's not tied to skin color. It's not tied to clothes on the back of the car you drive, any of that external stuff. But God, in reality, what you say about me is true. That's what gives me my worth and my value. I am your beloved creation. That's good. It's pleasing and it's perfect. So I pray that every day I would recognize that and live as in light of that particular truth. God, I'm praying for those that are here today and they're struggling, Lord. They're struggling because their internal sense of self doesn't align with their external bodies. And God, that does cause them discomfort and distress. Oh, would you help them through the work of your Holy Spirit to have a renewed and transformed mind so that God, they they really would see themselves in a healthy way and they could live the life that you intended for them to live and they could draw nearer to you every day because of your grace and mercy in their lives. Lord, We offer our bodies to you as living sacrifices. And we pray that this is holy and pleasing in your sight. We pray this in your name. Amen. I'll leave you with a couple of resources if you want to do some more reading on these particular subjects. Um, The first is the book by the author that I mentioned earlier in the message, Nancy Piercy. She wrote a a text called Love Thy Body, which is a really good book. If you want to know how did we get to the point that like our, our, like we don't value the physical body anymore and it's all about the internal and the mind and you know, why is language changing? All that stuff. She does such a good job of of explaining it all in a way that is very easy to understand. And um, it's it's based uh, strongly in the scripture. So I would highly encourage that book to you. In fact, if I could only make like three recommendations on this whole subject, that book would be at the, t- it would be within those three. Um, the, the second book that I'll recommend today is called Irreversible Damage. It's by a journalist, a Jewish person um, named Abigail Schreier. And um, in her book, it's actually fascinating. We'll talk a little bit more about this next week. Um, but she points out that 20 years ago, nine out of 10, like the vast majority, almost 100%, honestly, of people that experienced gender dysphoria were elementary-aged boys. Almost entirely, it was elementary-aged boys who were like, I'm really a girl. 
Today, 20 years later, nine out of 10 people that experience gender dysphoria are teenage girls. What's brought about that shift? What does that mean? And what does that reveal about the gender issues that we're facing. We're going to talk a little bit about that next week. And she goes into great detail about it in the book. So there's a couple of resources that might help you next week. We're going to be answering a lot of questions that you guys have submitted to me, or you've asked me in years past regarding these um, particular things. Like if I'm at my job and they want me to use pronouns and stuff, how do I handle all that? We're going to talk about that from a biblical perspective next week. And then we'll be on to another subject two weeks from now. 